Our uh, chapel speaker today, I've uh, looked forward to this conversation with Dr. Melody Eckhart. Uh, Dr. Eckhart is the director of Women's Refugee Health in Boston's Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights at Boston's Medical Center, where she also serves as a faculty OBGYN physician and instructor at Boston University School of Medicine. Her training includes a medical degree from John Hopkins, residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Tufts in Boston, and MPH in global health and population from Harvard School of Public Health. She has 13 years of experience in provision of maternal health. In addition, she is a Global Health Fellow in the Division of Global Health and Human Rights at Massachusetts General Hospital, where her current work includes maternal ultrasound research in in Mali and emergency maternal, newborn, and child assessment and training in southern Sudan. Her interests include refugee health, maternal ultrasound in resource-poor settings, and the barriers of antenatal and emergency obstetrical care in the developing world. Dr. Eckhart's previous international health experience include projects in Romania, India, Pakistan, Nepal, southern Sudan, Mali, and the country of Georgia. She, her, her husband, Ralph, is with us today, and her three daughters, if they could stand, and uh, girls are over there, and here's Ralph on the front row. It's good to have, and her parents are here as well, so it's good to have you. Will we please welcome Dr. Melody Eckhart. Melody, you graduated from uh, Messiah College, I believe. You went to another Christian college. So right away, let me just say we forgive you, and uh, we extend grace and mercy for that. Uh, but tell us about your journey, how you knew or how you ended up going into medicine before we get into the really incredible work you're doing. Morning. How's the hell? <laughs> so I, um, I think a lot of people, when they think about following God and what they're supposed to do in life, expect this big epiphany. I think my only epiphany was high school physics when I realized I wasn't going to be an astronaut because I couldn't do physics. And so, but I could do biology. Um, So I just, you know, I told God long ago that I would just do whatever he wanted step by step. And so he's taken me on a journey step by step. He doesn't tell me what's coming next year. He tells me what's coming tomorrow, and that's what I do. So, um choosing medicine. Um, I went to Messiah and my orientation week, um, we were all put in this big gym, kind of like your gym. And, uh, we sat on the bleachers and different directors of departments at the end of the orientation walked up and said, okay, I'd like all the English majors to follow me. I'd like all of the physics majors to follow me. And then he said, I'd like the biology majors to follow me. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? And um, biology was my best course in high school. So I became a biology major. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, thinking about biology and working with um, biology in the classes, I realized that the ones I really like were around human physiology. And I really couldn't see myself in a lab. And I started to realize I had to think about what I was going to do with this uh, major I'd chosen. And um, God started leading me down the, the path of going to medical school. And I didn't actually decide till I was a senior in college that I was going to go to medical school. So I took a year off and took the MCATs and, and went after that. And uh, after medical school, you were in private practice for eight years or with a group? Uh, yeah, so I went to residency for obstetrics and gynecology. And then I was eight years on the South Shore working. Actually, I worked here in Quincy, the Crown Colony. And after eight years of doing that, there was a big change uh, that came about. And explain the process, a little bit about the, that process and, and why uh, the transition out of private, private practice. 
Yeah, so I, you know, when I, even when I was in med school thinking about what my specialty would be and still having in mind, I'll do whatever God calls me to do, I, um, I started feeling like I should keep the door open to doing international work. Um, my parents have always been involved in the church and the, in the missions departments, and I'd been on several missions trips, and it was really where my heart is. So um, I thought I picked my specialty because I knew there was a lot of need in obstetrics and gynecology. But then, you know, I had children, and <laughs> there were bills. And um, so uh, we, I went into private practice. But that desire to be involved in global health never went away. And, you know, Ralph's job changed, and uh, the doors sort of opened. By the time Lexi was going to preschool, my youngest, it was time that I could do something different. And so I actually thought I was done practicing medicine and that I was just going to go and do global health, public health work. And I went and I got my master's in public health then from Harvard. And uh, it was in that program while at Harvard that you became associated with refugee work here in Boston. Is that correct? Yes. So during that time, I remember um, I was driving in the car listening to NPR. And there was a a guy who came on, actually Dr. Uh, Gordon, who I know now, um, and he started talking about the Boston Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights at Boston University, and he was talking about um, people who had suffered abuse or torture in their home countries who were coming here and seeking asylum. And there's a program at Boston University that does the asylum work, the medical affidavits for those patients going through their legal cases, as well as provides a lot of support. And I remember just crying the whole time I was listening to this story on NPR and thinking, I would really love to get involved with something like that. And then while I was at the School of Public Health, one of my classmates said that she was moving and she was leaving a position in the OBGYN department at Boston University. And, and I started getting involved in doing some global health work on a part-time basis. I didn't, it wasn't time for our family to completely move. So I needed to find something where I could do global health part of the time and then be here part of the time. So it worked out so that I was able to take over her position at Boston University. And when I came into the OBGYN department, they said, oh, we have somebody who specializes in refugee health work who is going to be leaving and we're going to be looking for someone to take that position. So I was able to um, get that job and walk into a space that had been made for me before to be able to do that work. Yes, that is, a, <laughs> that is incredible how, how God works. Um, and I was going to mention at the end, but as, as you just share that point, and as we heard Jan and Cheryl Weissen share uh, their story and how uh, they came together, um, I hope you see not only in uh, Dr. Eckhart's talk today, but also from Jan and Cheryl and other stories that you hear that God really does work all things together for good. And so it really is about living a life of faithfulness and not always knowing what the next step is, but living a life completely surrendered to God that he will lead and guide and direct your steps. And so that, I think that's a testimony uh, to that. Yeah. And now let's get into a little more specifics about the refugee work. I think you were going to put in a little bit of a disclaimer um, on uh, how we, what we're going to talk about today. And, and, um, and yeah, so I, I'm an OBGYN physician. So think about what area of the body I'm working with all the time. (laughs) So I may have to use some terms people might not be used to hearing in in the church. (laughs) Uh, We're ready. Go ahead. Uh... (laughs) 
me to talk about my refugee health work? Yes. Okay. So I, you know, I'm basically the OBGYN physician for these women who go through this program. And it's not just women. They have men too. And, you know, we have several physicians from different specialties at Boston University that participate in helping um, asylum seekers. So as a woman, I do, you know, taking care of women, I do their um, regular OBGYN care. But there's a couple things that I do that are a little different from a typical OBGYN. One is that I write asylum affidavits for women who have been victims of um, sexual violence. And so that involves me hearing their stories. And I actually have to take pictures of scars and put them in a legal document for the courts. The other thing that I do that's a little bit different is we have a large number of people from um, East Africa, actually from all of Africa um, here in Boston. We have a large uh, immigrant population. And some of those women have had female genital circumcisions or female genital cutting. And so um, my job within our group is to do repairs around that. And explain what that, from a cultural You're going to make me use those No, terms. I'm not trying to do that. I just can't imagine everyone understand. You know, you don't need to give any medical details, but just, just explain. I don't know uh, how to explain it without well, medical details. Well, just from a cultural standpoint and all. Okay. I can tell you what it is. First, you have to know what it is to talk about. So female genital cutting um, is a cultural practice in a lot, actually several, it's in the Middle East, it's in Africa. Um, People think about it as North Africa and East Africa. And part of a woman's sort of uh, passage within her community is that when she's somewhere between 5 and 12, she undergoes a procedure called a circumcision where they actually, I'm going to use the word, (laughs) they'll cut off the clitoris and cut off the labia minora, and usually in some places they'll sew it together so that the opening is very closed, Um, which, you know, there's a lot of cultural reasons why that takes place, Um, but the things that people think about the most is, you know, it helps prove her chastity and makes her more marriable. Um, So I think that's part of what motivates it. Um, You know, and with anything that's part of your culture and how you grow up, there's lots of lore that grows up around it. You know, you're cleaner, it's prettier. We do a lot of things here for cosmetic reasons that are surgeries, right? So, um, and thoughts about, you know, you'll be better able to have children, the clitoris is dangerous, you know, it shouldn't be there. Um, so there's a lot of lore that sort of grows around it, as well as, as well as a lot of community pressure. So families who decide that their children shouldn't be circumcised, everybody thinks they're not clean. So they don't let them go to the well at the same time to gather water from other people. Um, Or they might even be chased away from water sources and they're not allowed to really congregate with others. So there's lots of community pressure around the the practice as well. And then some of these women seek asylum here or refugees here and um, then find your network or get connected with you. And, And what does your organization do to help in more specific your work? Yeah. So um, most women who are here in the U.S. had this procedure done at home, of course, because it's actually against the law to do here, and it's against the law to send a child home and bring them back in order to have the procedure. So um, women who are here who have the procedure done have been, it's what's done in their home countries. And for some women, it's, it's, you know, not something that they see as a very negative part of their life. It was part of what their culture did, and they're very fine with it. But some women have had really bad experiences. And so they will often not want to go home and and bring their kids home, but maybe they can't stay here because they don't have permanent legal status. So one of the reasons people seek asylum is around female genital cutting. 
There are other reasons, too, which I mentioned before, um, uh, sexual violence. The organization, the Boston Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights, includes both the medical care but also a lot of additional support because asylum seekers don't get a lot of support from the state. Um, If you're a refugee, everyone, you know, we say women's refugee health, but it's any immigrant. If you're a refugee, you actually get accepted as an asylee, essentially, but you're, you're accepted to come to the U.S. as a permanent resident from your refugee camp or from your place where it's not safe for you. People who are asylum seekers come here, and they haven't had that acceptance yet, so they're outside of our health safety nets. They don't have health insurance. They aren't supported by um, having Medicare or Medicaid. Um, so our group has special grants to be able to help with all the other needs, like find them housing, help them with um, job placements and being able to help them get some work permit for a temporary work permit and those sorts of things. So we do a wide range of things and psychiatric care is a big piece. And do you want to talk about, about your work, um, the surgeries or things that What I place? do. Yes. Yeah. So when people need um, repairs, so I'll do the repairs if people need a repair. Some people don't have long-term complications from the procedure, um, but there are a lot of things that can go wrong and end up being an issue later in life. So you can imagine for women who have been sewed really tight, it's very difficult for them to get pregnant and to have children. And um, there, there have been a number of studies, particularly a very large one across six countries, looking at women who've had the procedure or not had the procedure. Whether they're sewn up or not, they tend to have longer protracted labors, poor um, pregnancy outcomes where their baby's not doing as well. So we take really special care of them when they get pregnant. And if they um, are sewn tight, we have to do the opening. So there aren't a lot of OBGYNs that do the procedure. It's something I've learned since I started working at Boston University. So that's kind of my role is to fix things when there's a problem. Um, there are other kinds of complications that can develop. So, so I'll do that uh, surgically, fix those issues. What incredible work. And uh, Dr. Eckhart's going to, we're going to shift to another. If, if that wasn't incredible enough, all the work that she's doing and uh, how busy uh, she is, we're going to shift to another area for work. But she will be available after chapel if you want to talk to her or find out more uh, information about the refugee work. Uh, but now let's shift to your other focus uh, professionally. Um, now, your pastor did say, make it very clear to everyone that she's very active in the church and always helps out in the church. And uh, so as busy as you are, you're still very committed to your local church Absolutely. and on the worship team here at Wallston and other things. Um, so you have the refugee work. Tell us about your other Global career. Health Work. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So I was able to, um, after I graduated from with my master's of public health, have this job at Boston University as a part-time, half-time, although my husband would tell you it's one of my two full-time jobs. <laughs> so I have that job, and then I also work at Mass General Hospital in the Global Health and Human Rights Division as the Director of Maternal Health. And, and that's a really fun story, actually, too, because that's one of those things that I would hear these stories about how women were dying in childbirth, and they're dying of things we know how to treat. I know how to treat them. I've been, you know, we, we learn all of this in residency program. Um, and we rarely see a woman die in childbirth uh, in the U.S. And the rates are about 20 per 100,000 women. But in places in the world where they don't have adequate health systems, the rates are 1,000 per 100,000 in some countries, particularly ones that have had uh, conflict. And that's a huge, huge discrepancy for something we know how to treat. Um, So that has been on my heart for a really long time. And then um, 
know, I had this thought that you could maybe go to the traditional birth attendants and, and put together a kit that they would have some supplies so that it, if they were delivering women in their homes, they would be able to at least have access to some things where they could stabilize somebody and then send them to a health center. And that's exactly what I got to do when I started working with um, the, the uh, Division of Global Health and Human Rights at Mass General Hospital. We started working in South Sudan on that very type of project. And my biggest, the biggest killer of women actually worldwide is postpartum hemorrhage. So after they deliver the, the baby, they bleed too much. And um, we have a number of ways that we work on that here in the U.S. and most places in the world. You know, there's some maneuvers you can do. You give medications. We have about five different kinds of medications. And, you know, if all goes really bad, then we can do surgery. But women in most of the developing world are not delivering in places where surgery is available. They don't have blood transfusions available. They're often delivering in their homes far away from a health center, and they don't have vehicles to get there. So um, this is part of the challenge. So my thought when we put together our, our commodities packet, um, and we were dealing with all kinds of emergencies, maternal and child emergencies in this packet, um, postpartum hemorrhage was going to have to be a primary focus. But I didn't have any medications because the supply chains were really, really bad in South Sudan where we were working. South Sudan was at war for 50 years. And so really a lot of their systems were very broken. So I couldn't get medications. The hospitals, there was one hospital in all of the, of one state in Eastern Equatoria where we were working that would offer um, surgeries. No other hospitals existed that could offer surgeries. And it's a huge state. It's, you know, like the state of Virginia. Um, and so uh, that left me with really not much I could do. We have one device that we use in the U.S. In the, in the US called the intrauterine balloon. Um, it is uh, about $350. And you can put a balloon inside a woman's womb, inside her uterus, and blow it up. And just like if you cut yourself on your arm, um, the first thing you do, right, is put pressure on it if it's bleeding a lot, but you can't really reach inside the uterus to put pressure very well. So this balloon goes inside and blows up and puts pressure against the walls on the inside of the uterus. So we bought a couple of these balloons for $350 each. And we quickly realized that we were not going to be able to equip the entire state of Eastern Equatoria <laughs> with $350 balloons. Um, so uh, we started reading in the literature and there are a couple people who have used something you can find Everywhere in the world, and it's another word I have to say in church, condoms, right? You can find a condom anywhere. People have been distributing condoms for HIV protection across Africa for the past 10 years, and they're free. So we realized that we could actually use a condom as the balloon, free. And then we just attach it to a Foley catheter or a bladder catheter, and that I could put in their pack, and they could wash that and reuse that. So we started seeing if we could maybe stop postpartum hemorrhage in these villages by using a condom tied on the end of a Foley catheter. And so uh, we really didn't know if it would work. I hear talk. There must be some questions for afterwards. <laughs> we, we distributed these to um, about 130 traditional birth attendants who didn't really have any official training. They sort of inherited the role of delivering babies in their villages from their parents and their grandparents and uh, tried to train them on how to use it. And we had no idea whether they would be able to do this. 
And then we started hearing stories from, you know, a health center here or a village there about a woman who was bleeding and they'd used the balloon and it had saved her life. And so we went back and we started asking questions to find out who would actually use this balloon. We came up with 13 cases and in all cases, the bleeding stopped. In several cases, probably about 50%, the women were so bleeding so badly that they had already passed out, which we call that stage three or four shock when somebody loses consciousness from blood loss. Um, and it has a 50% mortality rate in the U.S. When, some, you know, when we've measured it. And all those women survived. We lost one mom. Yeah. Good, right? <laughs> Right. So we lost one mom because she, uh, she had another complication the next day related to one of our other problems, which is eclampsia in pregnancy. But um, they all stopped bleeding. So we've been touting that around the world and have expanded it. And we have now about um, 175 uses of the uterine balloon with a 95% survival rate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. Exciting. So this really has, I uh, uh, read in an email recently, as someone was writing about you, a fond fan of yours, was uh, filling uh, the pastor enemy in on your life in an email, and he said that um, this uh, device, that really maybe is less than a dollar now, uh, could save literally hundreds of thousands of lives, and it is growing and more people are being uh, saved from it. So it really is incredible. Thank you for your work. And we're going to watch a brief video of uh, a gentleman you were, who you went to train on this. He speaks of uh, this woman. And when you hear him say this woman, or the lady, I forget how close he's talking about Dr. Eckert. Uh, he wasn't too fond of the training. Uh, so tell us a little bit before about what we're going to see here in a moment. Yeah, so we've stopped just training in little huts. And we've taken this to all levels of the healthcare center. Because even in a major hospital, if you use the condom balloon, you can prevent somebody from having to have a hysterectomy or major surgery. That's the next step. If your medicines don't work, you have to take them to surgery without the balloon. So we've trained at all levels. And we went to this one um, hospital while we were trying to train. And this was, it's, a, you know, it's not what we would call a hospital necessarily, but they have an operating room and they have a doctor who can do surgery. So it gets the title of hospital. And the doctor, we said we wanted to do some training on postpartum hemorrhage. And, you know, he's trained. He knows how to handle it. He knows that if the bleeding doesn't stop with the medicine, you just take somebody to the operating room and you take the uterus out, and you can save her life. And so he was not really that excited about learning something new because he trained for six years, you know, in, in medical school. He knows what he's doing. And it took me actually an hour probably waiting for him. He kept saying, yeah, yeah, I'll get there. I'll come, and I'll come to your training. Um, we trained with an organization called KMET. You'll hear him say KMET. They're a local organization that helps us with our distribution. Um, and so we finally showed it to him, and he paid attention. He listened. I think once somebody sort of sees it, it's an interesting little device. Uh, But then he'll talk to us about a case when he actually realized that he couldn't take the woman to the operating room because her blood pressure was too low. She'd bled too much already, and there was no way to do a transfusion for her. And so um, the anesthetist... It's a little hard to understand his his accent, but the anesthetist said, I'm not taking her to the operating room because she's going to die on the table, and I'm I'm not going to take that responsibility. We cannot save her. She's already too bad. And his nurse said, remember that balloon they talked about? So uh, he'll tell you that story. My name is Dr. Richard Olunga. I'm a senior medical officer, and I'm also the clinical manager of Bama Hospital in Siaya. So um, you have recently had an experience at delivering a child 
where a woman had the postpartum, a serious postpartum hemorrhage, and you used the UBT. Yes. Can you just tell us the story of what took place in the in the delivery and how that happened? Sure. So this lady, 34-year-old lady, para zero, who came to us for delivery. She was in labor, but at some point the labor arrested. So the, she, she wasn't getting good contractions, so you were forced to augment it in second phase, in second stage, so when in the active phase. So after the augmenting, she went ahead to deliver comfortably, but immediately after the delivery, within like 10 15 minutes, before, when the placenta was delivered, she started pouring, just developed a very bad PPH. So she was pouring and pouring. We did everything that's conventional. We ensured the bladder was empty. We gave you, we did uterine massage. We gave all the oxytocins, nothing. Unfortunately, there was no blood to transfuse her. So basically what we were relying on at that point was um, just to give fluids and to do all the other conventions that we know. Then at some point, it even didn't come, the, the idea didn't come from me, but rather from my nursing officer in charge. You said, we've been trained by KMET on this issue of UBT. Let's give it a try just to see, because the lady was pouring, literally pouring blood, you know. And she was already turning pale, she was confused, she was in shock, the pressure had already gone down at around 80, 50. At some point, we couldn't even detect the pressure, and the pulse was quite high. She'd already developed tachycardia, trying to compensate for the acute blood loss. So basically what we did, we tried the UBT technique. And, uh, you know, it was like a desperate measure, because at some point we knew we were losing the mother. Yeah, everyone knew that we were going to lose the mother. So we put in the, the, the balloon, just the way we'd been shown by Kemet. We, uh, we inflated it with around 60 cc of water. Then we put in um, you know, the, the balloon to hold it back from coming out. Then it worked like a miracle. All the PPH stopped at once. Bah, just stopped once. We were all shocked. Because eh? you know, we'd really tried many conventional things. But it stopped at once, and uh, you know everyone was excited. And now we started looking for blood. We never found blood. We called at the nearby institutions. There was no blood, so we pressed in with the fluids. But now, um, because the bleeding had stopped, with our fluids going on and the bleeding had stopped, the lady who had already collapsed at this time was already semi-conscious, wasn't communicating, wasn't taking command. Started coming back and asking us. She was saying, I was feeling thirsty, and I was feeling like I was dying. I felt like I was dying, and I was feeling quite thirsty. You know, and she came back. So after she was stable, that is when we contacted our coordinator, that lady, and asked her, now, you taught us this thing, we've done it, it's worked, it's a miracle, it's worked well, it saved a life. But uh, now, when do we remove the balloon? You know, then she told us, you can keep it as 12, 24 hours, it's okay. So we kept it in. And after around 12 hours, it was removed. Then it was stable and absolutely no complication after the UBT. It was a successful story. That still makes me cry every time I see it. (laughs) You know, one of the things, too, is um, I think most people, and rightly so, um, think about the patient, the life that saved. But... For me, I think about that man, you know, as a healthcare provider, when something goes wrong, you don't recover. And um, so many people, when we've talked about the uterine balloon, they'll say to you, I wish that I had known about this when the patient was here last week. 
Um, I wish that I had known about this when I started my practice. We had one gentleman who's actually the director of um, maternal health for all of one of the states in Kenya. And he looked so skeptical when we were talking about the uterine balloon. And we showed him everything. And he had this completely dead face and showed no emotion. And we thought, he's not going to buy this, right? And then we got done with our story. And he said, you know what? When I, the first job I had at my hospital... I had a woman who came to the hospital and he said she was, she had delivered at home and she was bleeding and you could trace her footsteps in our hospital from the admission ward. Someone sent her to outpatient. She went to the pharmacy. She went back to the admission ward and then we finally got her on the inpatient ward and you could trace the blood following her around because she was bleeding so badly and it wasn't being recognized, right? And he said, you know, we did everything we could at that point, and we just couldn't make the bleeding stop, and she died. And he said, I have paid for her child through school and college education because I never forgot that woman. And it's devastating. And I really see this not only as a way to save lives, which is great and important. It makes a huge difference for every one of that one, those women's children because they're much more likely to get educated in healthcare and things. We know that when the mother's in the home. But I also think about the healthcare providers who've been really working without a sense of hope and maybe just having one more tool will give them a chance to make a difference in somebody's life and to have some hope that they can, they can do that job and not have to feel this. So that's part of what it means to me too. Well, thank you. This has been a, thank you so much for making time for us today and being here. Um, one of the reasons, before we thank Dr. Ecker, one of the reasons um, I wanted to lead this conversation and uh, not Jenny or Edie, my wife, or another woman, is because it really is important for men to know these things as well and be supportive and be concerned about uh, postpartum hemorrhaging and that then hundreds of thousands of women that are dying around the world and the refugee work that we're doing. And now we already have great leaders like Dr. Eckhart. So I challenge you guys to be supportive and encouraging. You just get out of their way and let them lead. Um, but uh, to really recognize this should be, we should be concerned and cared for all of us. It's not just a women's issue by any stretch of the imagination. But so I wanted the community to know that. But can we thank Dr. Eckhart uh, this morning? Uh, let, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for Dr. Eckhart's work and uh, her faithfulness to serving you and just uh, her living uh, testimony of how you, you can take a life and just do incredible things. So uh, I thank you for the family support that she has in her husband and children and her parents. And uh, she recognizes, uh, and we know, that she couldn't be doing what she's doing now if she didn't have the support and uh, commitment of a of, of Ralph and her parents and, and her church community. So we thank you for them. They play a big part in this as well. And, and may we recognize that, that we support and care for one another in our families and in our community. So we pray your blessing upon her work when uh, Global Health with the Refugee Network, all of it, Lord, we just pray your continued blessing upon it. And may hundreds of thousands, even millions of lives be saved uh, by this uterine balloon. We give you praise for that. And to give you praise as a community, as we often do, Lord, we stand and sing. Praise God from...